Good morning. Welcome to Restoration Church. It is uh, such a blessing to be here. Uh, Happy Easter. Uh, Easter is uh, probably one of my favorite holidays. Um, How many of you guys have big plans for Easter? You're going to go do uh, ham and that sort of thing this afternoon. Uh, Reminded of a story. There's a little boy a couple years ago. A little boy uh, was invited to grandma's house for lunch after church for Easter Sunday. And uh, Goes to grandma's house and, and, and mom fixes this big plate of food and puts the plate in front of the little boy. Little boy just starts dishing in, just starts eating, going crazy. And dad says, hey, hey, son, son, you got you to gotta stop. You know, at our house, we, we say grace before we eat. And uh, little boy says, I know, but we're at grandma's house and grandma knows how to cook. So, so whatever you're doing today, I hope you are going to be able to celebrate uh, with family and friends, uh, celebrate Easter and the resurrection. You know, something, uh, something that's true is, is everything has a starting point. As we think about life, everything has a starting point. Every, every job has a starting point. Every, every journey has a starting point. Every one of us in here today, we have a starting point. Some of you were started on purpose, and some of you were started on accident. Mom and dad, you know, something happened, and here you are nine months later. Whatever your starting point is, we're glad you're here with us today at Restoration Church. But everything, everyone has a starting point. In fact, I remember growing up, I played a lot of baseball. And uh, I remember, uh, it must have been t-ball or coach pitch, one of the two. Uh, I hit a home run. And every home run has a starting point. Now, mind you, when you're playing coach pitch or whatever it is, nobody knows how to catch. So everything's a home run. But I remember getting up to, 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 to it was going to be my turn to bat. And I had to go to the bathroom. But I knew it was going to be my turn to bat pretty soon. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to hold it so I can bat, all right? So I get up to bat, and I get my bat in my hand, and I hit the ball. And that hit was the starting point of my home run. And the whole thing is, is, is by the time I got all the way around those bases, I lost it all. You know, like, like literally, I lost it all. My white pants were a different color. And, uh, but there was a starting point to that home run. Imagine that. This message has a weird starting point, right? (laughs) Everything has a starting point, including our faith. Our faith has a starting point. For some of you, your starting point for your faith was, uh, this is what mom and dad said. Your starting point for your faith was, mom and dad said this is true, and so you just believed it. For some of you, the starting point to your faith was, well, this is what the priest said, and so since the priest said it, you believed it. And, and we all had a starting point to our faith. And that kind of a starting point for your faith, it works when you're young, and, and, and it's fine, it's a good foundation. But as we get older, as we mature, we become uneasy with that kind of foundation for our faith. And we start to ask ourselves those questions. Well, how do I know? How do I know this is true? How do I know that mom and dad know the truth? How, do I, how can I believe and ensure of this? It reminds me, there's a story the Old Testament, about a, a young man by the name of Samuel. And Samuel grew up with the priest Levi. There was one night where, where Samuel was sleeping, and he heard his name, Samuel. And so Samuel got up, and he said, Eli, you called my name. What do you need? And he's like, I was sleeping. I didn't call your name. Go back to bed, little kid. So Samuel goes back to bed, and hears his name again, Samuel. And he goes to Eli and says, Eli, what do you need? And Eli says, I didn't call your name. And he says, here's what you're going to do, Samuel. 
if you hear your name again, I want you to say, yes, Lord, I'm listening. So Samuel goes back to bed and, and hears his name, Samuel. And he says, yes, Lord, I'm listening. And God speaks to him in that moment. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have actually heard the audible voice of God speaking to you. I can say I've never heard the audible voice of God speaking to me, which is probably a good thing because if I was Samuel and I was a little boy and I heard God call my name, whether it be in the middle of the day or the middle of the night, I'd need one of those sheet protectors on my bed that mom and dad put on when you're young. You know what I, I'm just saying, just saying. The question is, how do we know what God says is true? How do we know that God is real? I mean, we would love to have God say, hey, hey, Samuel, hey, hey, Kevin, I'm real. Here's what I have to tell you. We'd love to have that happen. But how do we know if we don't hear that voice? Is it we just trust what mom and dad said? Is it we trust what the the priest or the pastor said? Believe it or not, there's a guy in the Bible by the name of Peter. And Peter had some of these same questions. In fact, when we were first introduced to Peter in the Bible, Peter was a pretty trusting guy. He was one of the first people to follow Jesus. Jesus said, come, follow me. And, and Peter took Jesus at his word and he followed Jesus. And he got some other people said, hey, come follow Jesus with me as well. So two years, Peter went around following Jesus and learning from Jesus. And Jesus would teach them and, and show them these things. And, uh, and Jesus gave this promise. You know, I'm the savior of the world. I'm going to fix what's gone wrong in the world. And you can imagine Peter being excited. Man, this is awesome. God is here. But eventually, things didn't play out quite like Peter anticipated. Jesus was arrested. Jesus was put on trial. And then Jesus was, was killed on a cross. And at that point, Peter's world came crashing down. Jesus, he was supposed to save the world, and now he's dead. I mean, how does this work out? You can imagine the, the questions running through Peter's mind. How could God let this happen? This wasn't the way it was supposed to play out. And here's Peter saying, man, Jesus, Jesus was so loving. Jesus was supposed to be in control. And now Jesus has left Peter and the other disciples all on their own in the midst of this mess. Peter struggled with faith. It got so bad that three times he denied even being a follower of Jesus. But something happened. Something happened on the Easter morning many, many, many years ago. Something changed everything. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses, uh, first couple of, uh, of verses of John chapter 20. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to uh, pray for our time together. God, we're thankful for the opportunity to be gathered here today, uh, God, with your people. Uh, God, we know that uh, the church is not just a building. The church is the people. So, God, we're thankful to be gathered with your people today. God, I pray that you would help us to lean in and to, to learn. God, I pray that you help us to understand the resurrection. God, I pray that you help us to put the distractions out of our minds and that you would speak clearly to every one of us this morning. God, you know what it is we need to hear. So God, I pray that you would rest your presence on us now. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 20, you can follow along in your Bible, on your phone. If you brought a desktop computer, you can put that up and follow along in there. Or you've got the words on the screen as well. So whatever you have, you can follow along. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark 
and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He was a CrossFit guy. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. See, Peter walked into that tomb as a discouraged, defeated doubter. And Peter walked out of that tomb as the most important leader in the new Christian movement. From that point forward, those early Christian disciples, they would look to Peter to lead them, to guide them, to help them understand what's going on. And we have to just ask this question, what happened? What happened in that tomb that caused Peter to enter in as a doubter and to walk out as the most important leader in the early church? Did Peter think back to mom's encouragement? Did Peter think back to what the priest said? Did those things begin to matter to Peter? No. What happened to Peter is he came face to face with a resurrection. He came face to face with a place that there was a body here three days ago, and now there's no longer a body. The body is, is, is not there. He came face to face with this. Now listen, many of us are like Peter. We've got these questions. We've got some things that we look at faith and we look at God, and we say they just don't add up. You know, and, and maybe, maybe you're like Peter. Maybe you're like Peter and you feel like God's disappointed you. Maybe you expected God to do a certain thing. Maybe you expected life to play out a certain way. And, and there were circumstances that were thrown at you that you don't think are very fair. And maybe you've become disappointed with God. Like, God, somehow you have failed me because you didn't do what I anticipated you would do. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you feel like you've failed God. You know, like Peter, after he denied Jesus three times, he was probably at the point where he realized, man, Our relationship has gone too far. There's no way that we can be restored because I failed God too many times. I want you to experience what Peter experienced that morning. That the starting point, the basis for our faith isn't what mom and dad said. It isn't what the priest said, what the pastor said. The starting point, the basis for our faith is the truth of the resurrection. Listen, that changes everything. That changes everything. The basis of our faith comes down to the resurrection. We say, well, how do we, how do we know that the resurrection is true? How can we be sure that the resurrection really happened? Well, the thing is, is every legitimate scholar, every legitimate scholar, they all agree on, on a few basic things. They agree that there really was a man who was named Jesus and who lived many years ago. There really was a man named Jesus who was crucified by the Romans, executed by the Romans. This man, Jesus, was really buried. And then on the third day, his tomb was really emptied. Every legitimate scholar agrees to those basic ideas. The question is, well, how did the, how did the body get removed? 
What happened to the body? Because not everybody, not everybody believes that Jesus really rose from the grave. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, how did the tomb get empty? I mean, how did the tomb really get empty? And really, there's, there's three options for us to consider. The first option for us to consider about how the, the tomb got empty was somebody stole the body. You can picture this. Somebody went in, they stole the body, they posted to Twitter, Jesus is resurrected, and that became viral and spread throughout everybody, and everybody heard about it. So if somebody's going to steal the body, they've got to have a couple of different things. They've got to have the means, the ability to, to, to do it, and they've got to have a motive to steal the body. And so we start thinking through, well, who are the suspects? Who could have stolen the body? And we could think, well, the Romans, the Romans could have stolen the body. Pilate was kind of the governor at the time. And he issued some Roman guards to stand guard around the clock outside of the tomb. So those guys certainly had the means to break into the tomb and steal the body. But we've got to wonder, what was their motive? What was their motive for stealing the body? It would not give them any benefit. In fact, those Romans, the Romans are the ones that killed Jesus in the first place. They're the ones that sentenced him to death. And if any of those soldiers stole the body, there was a law that said if you steal, if you were to break into this tomb that was sealed, if you break into this tomb, it is punishable by death. So we have to look and say there really doesn't seem logical that the Romans would have stolen the body. But what about the Jews? I mean, these were like the enemies of Jesus. These were the religious people of the day. And possibly they stole the body. I mean, they had the, the, the motive, right? I mean, picture this. If they were able to steal the body, they steal the body. And then just by chance, somebody else down the road says, hey, Jesus was resurrected. All the Jews would have to do is produce the body. Because if they could produce the body and say, look, he's still dead. And that would defeat Christianity altogether. That would put an end to Christianity altogether. But did they ever do that? No. They never produced a body. Because they didn't have the body. Because they didn't steal it. Because they didn't have the ability. So if it wasn't the Romans, and it wasn't the Jews, maybe it was Jesus' disciples. I mean, they would have, that would make sense for them. I mean, they knew that Jesus had predicted, I will rise from the grave. We, we know they probably... I don't know if they had the means. You think about having to get past those Roman guards, and then you've got that big rock that you've got to roll out of the way to get in the tomb. Maybe they did. But what about the motive? They got no power from proclaiming the resurrection, from believing in the resurrection. In fact, out of the 11 disciples that were left, 10 out of 11 of those disciples suffered horrendous deaths because of their faith, because of their proclamation of the resurrection, because of their testimony. And the 11th disciple, he was, he was exiled to an island all by himself and died a lonely death. All because of their testimony that we have seen the risen Jesus. And you've got to imagine, if one of them stole the body to make the resurrection seem legit, don't you think when they were suffering and being persecuted and being tortured and being killed, don't you think that maybe one out of those 11 disciples would have recanted? And said, you know, my life is not worth this. You'd think one of them would. So it doesn't seem likely that Jesus' disciples stole the body as well. So it seems like that option that somebody stole the body is probably a not, very, uh, not a very likely option. Unconvincing. Theory number two. It's how the tomb got empty. 
would be that Jesus never really died in the first place. You know, like he never really died. He just passed out. And then when he was in the tomb, he, he, he revived and then he snuck out, you know, past that big rock. He snuck out past the guards. He appeared to some of his disciples and he convinced them that he'd been resurrected. And, and then, of course, we would think that Jesus would have moved to France and he would have shacked up with Mary Magdalene and he would have lived undiscovered until Tom Hanks broke his code and the Da Vinci Code many, many, many years later, you know. And as captivating as that sounds, as logist, as, logic, as realistic as that could be, there's a few things we have to understand about that. Those Romans, they were experts at executions. They knew what they were doing. In fact, there was a Roman law that said, if you're going to crucify somebody, if you take them down off that cross before they're really dead, whoever takes them down then will be killed in the same way. Those Romans knew what they were doing. And they would not have taken a man off the cross unless they knew he was really dead. In fact, we know that when Jesus was on the cross, the Romans, they took a spear and they thrust a spear into his side. And the Bible records that water and blood both came out of his side. Medical advancements today say that when somebody dies, uh, their blood begins to clot. And, and their blood separates from the watery serum. And so when they pierced his side and blood and water came out, it was evidence that he was really dead by the time they, they pierced his side. So, maybe, maybe not. And the second issue with this idea that Jesus never really died is you've got a, you've got a picture. Remember, remember the, the, the crucifixion story? Jesus was beaten in horrendous ways. He was whipped. He was, had a crown of thorns put on his head. Uh, we think about Jesus having to carry the cross all the way to the place of Golgotha where he was going to be crucified. Remember the story? He couldn't, he was so weak, he couldn't carry it, and he kept dropping it. And there was another man who picked it up and carried the cross the rest of the way. Listen, if, if Jesus somehow survived those beatings, and sometimes in those beatings, sometimes you just died from the beating. It was too severe. So if Jesus somehow survived all the beatings, and then Jesus somehow survived the crucifixion, man, he would have been in no state no physical state to be able to move the stone, be able to move around. He would have been too weakened to be able to do anything, right? So option two, that Jesus didn't really die, doesn't really seem promising. The third option we have to consider as to why the tomb was empty was Jesus really did rise from the dead. This is obviously the most simple and, and the most compelling solution as to why the, the, the tomb was empty. Was that Jesus resurrected, that he appeared before his disciples, that he commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and testify to the resurrection, testify to who he was, even risking their lives for that. And the disciples, they did so gladly because they saw a man who was dead and who was now alive again. This is the simplest and most compelling explanation as to why the tomb was empty was that Jesus really died and rose from the grave. We'll say, well, if this is so simple and, and compelling, why don't more people believe it? Why is this not universally accepted? Well, there's a German philosopher by the name of Wolfhart Pennenberg, and he wrote something very interesting. He said this, he said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. 
Here's why we question it. Number one, first, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way that you live. First, Pannenberg said it was a very unusual event. It's hard for us to believe in the supernatural. I mean, we live, we live in a day of, of education, of knowledge, of logic, of reason. And sometimes we have a hard time believing in things that we don't understand, things that we can't explain. In fact, there's a story in Acts chapter 4 where Peter uh, is brought before uh, a council called the Sanhedrin, Peter and a couple of the other disciples. And these are, or excuse me, the Sadducees. And these are really smart guys. These are guys that have multiple college degrees on their wall. They're very smart, very educated, very religious. And, and these smart people are saying, there's no way that the resurrection is true. There's no way that this is possible. And Peter gave them a response in Acts chapter 4, 19 and 20. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. He says, for we cannot speak but, or we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What Peter is saying, he's saying, look guys, you guys are, are smarter than us. By far. You guys have more degrees than, than a thermometer. You guys are way smarter than us. But listen, listen. All we can say is what we have seen. That there was a body that was dead. And now we have seen that body come back to life. And they're saying, hey, we're not trying to be rude. But the dead coming back to life, it trumps your knowledge. It is greater than any knowledge that you can have. We have seen this happen with our own eyes. That's all we can talk about. That's the only testimony we can claim. Look, look I'm not saying if you believe in the resurrection that you've got to believe in unicorns. You've got to believe that there's a pot of gold at the bottom of every rainbow. Just want you to consider the evidence of the resurrection. To consider the evidence that Jesus was really dead and that he rose from the grave. And the second reason why Pannenberg says we have a hard time believing in the resurrection is because if we do, then it changes the way that we live. Because if Jesus really died and he really rose from the grave, then that means that he is Lord over our morality, he's Lord over our salvation, he's Lord over politics, over history, over sexuality. He is Lord over everything. There's a guy by the name of Aldous Huxley, who lived in the early 1900s. And he's the guy that's attributed with coining the term agnostic. He was an agnostic. He was first to use that term. And he admitted essentially the same thing. He said this. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. For myself, as well as of many of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningness was a philosophy of liberation. And the liberation we sought was from Christian morality. See, if we don't believe in the resurrection, if we don't believe in the evidence that's in front of us, then we don't have anyone to answer to. We can live however we want with, with no laws, with no rules, with no idea that there could be a better way for us to live. We can do whatever we want to do. Other people will say, well, I won't believe in the resurrection because, you know, there's too much suffering in this world. Like if the resurrection is really true, then why is our world such a mess? And the resurrection is so true, then why has my life turned out this way? If the resurrection is so true, then how come God isn't more involved in the pain and the suffering and the hardships on our earth? Or maybe the question is, why is there so many religions? 
Or the question is, why does God speak against homosexuality? Or the question is, any sort of question is to God, why this? I don't understand it. You know, I think about Peter. I'm not sure Peter had all of his questions answered. I mean, I can picture Peter up in heaven now asking God all these questions. God, how did this play out? God, why did this happen? God, help me understand. Here's a little experiment I want you to do this morning. Here's what I want you to do with me. I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes. Put yourselves in Peter's shoes. And I want you to take whatever objection you have, whatever doubt you have, whatever objection, maybe that there's too many religions in the world, maybe that there's too much suffering in the world, maybe that the Bible talks against homosexuality. Take whatever objection that you have. And I want you to just put yourself in Peter's shoes. Okay? You run to that tomb. You're the first one to enter into that tomb. You see the place where the body was laid. And now you see that the body is gone. And all the evidence points to a miraculous resurrection. Okay? Jesus shows up later and says, I am who I said I am. He says, I'll answer all of your, all of your questions, but not now. Okay? If you were the first one into that tomb... You saw the place where the body laid and the body is now gone. Would you be willing to suspend your objections to live with a few unanswered questions for a time? You would say, well, if I could just see Jesus, if Jesus would just show himself to me, listen, the evidence is so strong that the resurrection is real. The breakdown is not in the uh, sufficiency of the evidence of the resurrection. The breakdown is that our prejudices keep us from considering the evidence of the resurrection on its own terms. If we were the first one there, just like Peter, I would guess that we could rethink our objections, at least temporarily, until God explained them to us further later. See, faith, faith occurs where the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. Faith occurs when the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. And when we think we have questions that are unexplainable. But listen, the resurrection is a miracle that is undeniable. Faith is not having all of your questions answered. Faith is wrestling with the unexplainable, knowing that the explanation for the unexplainable is found in the resurrection. Confronted with the evidence of the resurrection, we have two, cho- we have two choices. We have two options. The first option is that we can reject the resurrection. We can say, you know what? I'm going to refuse the evidence until all of my questions are answered. Until everything fits nice into a a little box. And I'll refuse to consider the possibility that perhaps God runs the universe in whose ways and understanding are a little higher than mine. No, I need to be able to understand everything. And until I can have all my questions answered, I'm not believing. Or the other option is that you would humble yourself. That you would consider the evidence without your prejudice. Set your prejudice aside. Set your, uh, set your objection aside. And just imagine that God might have ways of running the universe which at first don't make sense to you and I. question I have for you is this. In light of the resurrection, 
Are you willing to doubt your doubts? Peter did. And it changed his life forever. Peter stood before the council, no longer a coward. He stood before that council and said, you guys are smart. But all I can say is what I have seen and what I have heard and what the evidence points to, that this man was dead and now he's alive. And that changes everything. Everything changes when we put our faith in the resurrection that it was real. There's two ways that this changed Paul's life and there's two or Peter's life and there's two ways that it will change your life and mine. The first way that it changes is Paul was born again to a living hope. See, you're Peter. I said Paul. Peter. Two ways. That first way that Peter's life was changed is he was born again to a living hope. See, your hope is whatever you believe gains you acceptance before God. Most people think, you know what, if I'm just a good enough person, that'll give me acceptance before God. Or, or they think, you know, if I just follow my religious convictions good enough, then God will be pleased with me and I'll be able to be good with God. But listen, this works for a while until just like Peter and just like me and just like you, you fail. Because we all fail. And then we wonder, how good is good enough? You know, what's that scale at? You know, maybe my good outweighs my bad, so maybe that means I'm there. Listen, this is what, Paul, this is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said in verse 3, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, the gospel says that Jesus lived the life that you and I were supposed to live. That he died the death that you and I deserved. He earned our acceptance in our place. And he's given that to us. And the resurrection, that is God's stamp of approval. That's God's declaration that Jesus' payment on our behalf has been accepted. And so now we know that Jesus stands before the throne of God and he's testifying to the fact that the payment for our sin has been made. And whenever there's an accusation brought against us, whenever there's an accusation saying, this is why you don't deserve to be in the presence of God, Jesus stands there saying, no, I paid for that sin. I paid for that. The debt's been paid. They've been purchased. Peter says, I all have been born again. This is the process of new life. The power of the resurrection, it takes an, our, our old, our broken lives and he allows us to be born again. He allows us, allows us to be made new. This is what took Peter from being the, the Christ-denying doubter, the coward, into Peter who became the rock of the church. This is what takes, uh, our church is full of people, of stories just like this. People like Gary, people like Carlos, who God has brought them from a broken spot and God has redeemed them. God has made them new and has completely changed their lives. People in this church, people who were on drugs, kids who were kicked out of school, people who were in jail, people that were filled with bitterness and hate. And through the power of the resurrection, God changes them. God makes them new. Not because they were people who needed a second chance. Because these were people who were dead and God has made alive. Listen, I don't know you. I don't know your story. But I know that nobody has mistakes too big. Nobody has addictions too strong. 
that just as God breathed new life into the cowardly Peter, God can and will breathe new life into you and me. Second change that occurred when, when we put our faith in the resurrection is that Peter had a secure future. He says in 1 Peter 1 verse 4, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that we now have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, that sounds great. A secure future. Because one of the observations we make about this life is this life, no matter what it spoils, our life just spoils. This is what happens. And this happens to uh, money. You know, we dream of having riches, and then we have kids. And kids just go through the money like crazy, right? Anybody with kids, right? We think about health. I mean, I used to think that this was, you know, the, the specimen of good health. Now, I get up in the middle of the bathroom, bathroom and I pull a hamstring running to the bathroom, right? Get up in the middle of the night. Anybody done that before? A few of us. We think about family. We think, well, we can hold on to our family. But how many of our families have, have, have issues? I mean, how many families have like that crazy uncle? You got that crazy uncle and you're, just, you're dreading getting ready for a family event? Listen, if you don't have that crazy uncle, you might be that crazy uncle. That might be you. The point is, like we look at this life, there's nothing that we can hold on to. We can try, but there's nothing that we can hold on to. Yet Peter says, I have a secure future. Here's what I mean by he has a secure future. Any guys seen the new Cinderella movie that came out? I don't know, it's a year too old, something like that. Like two people have seen the movie? Goodness, watch the movies. It's my wife's favorite movie. I remember we rented it from Netflix. She made me rent it twice because she loved it so much. So finally I was like, I guess I should buy it for her. She'd probably appreciate that, right? Well, if you haven't seen that movie, you know the story. A young girl, beautiful girl named uh, Cinderella. She's born into a family of privilege. She's born into a family that, that loves her until she's forced to live with her evil stepmother. And, and, and her two jealous stepsisters. They make her into a slave. They make her feel ugly. They make her feel worthless. And then the fairy godmother shows up. Gives her the dress. Gives her the pumpkin carriage. And she goes to the ball. And at the ball she experiences the love of the princess. And she has this, this happiness that takes over her. Until the clock strikes midnight. And at midnight. She's swept back into her old situation. And all that's left of that miracle night is those two glass slippers. She has a glass slipper, and the prince has a glass slipper. And the prince never forgets her. He won't rest until she has been found and until she is brought back. He goes house to house looking for her. Here's the point. That glass, the, the resurrection is our glass slipper. The resurrection is our glass slipper. We live under a world, under the cruel stepmother named Satan. And we've got, we've got, uh, we're oppressed by two wicked ste stepsisters named the world and our flesh. And this world will beat us up. This world will throw the worst at us. It'll make us feel like we are worthless. And listen, in the gospel, in the gospel we meet the prince. And now we have that shoe. We have that resurrection. 
God's promise of what he is doing, that he is making us new, that he is coming back for us. And what do we do when the stepmother or our stepsisters begin to treat you poorly, begin to make your life miserable, begin to make you feel worthless? You defy those lies with a glass slipper. So I don't care what you throw at me because I have the resurrection. And you tell yourself, in the resurrection, this dirty old dungeon is not my real home. This difficult life is not my home. This wicked stepmother, these, these ugly stepsisters, they are not my family. This drab existence is not my future. Because I'm loved by a prince. I'm cherished. And he's coming back to take us out of all of this and to make everything right. See, your faith has a starting point. It has a basis, and that is in the resurrection. It is not a fairy tale. Jesus is who he says he is, and he is ready to make you into something new. And he is coming back for us again. So we get ready to close in prayer. I invite you just to Close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment.